This is John Nichols of The Nation magazine. Welcome to Next Left. This week we're visiting Virginia. 50 years ago, a fellow named Henry Howell almost got elected governor of Virginia. He was a white Democrat in a state where most white Democrats had spent the 1960s practicing massive resistance to civil rights. But Henry Howell was pro-civil rights, pro-women's rights, and pro-union. The Democratic establishment did everything they could to stop Henry Howell. They said he was too radical. And the Republicans? Well, they just hated him. But Henry Howell didn't care. He built a multiracial coalition against the big corporations. His slogan was, keep the big boys honest. After Henry Howell was narrowly defeated, it seemed as if his kind would never be seen again in Virginia. Well, meet Lee Carter, a 31-year-old working man who's pro-civil rights, pro-women's rights, pro-union. He's also an anti-war democratic socialist, and he's sitting in the Virginia House of Delegates, the same legislative chamber where Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and Henry Howell once sat. Lee Carter, welcome to Next Left. Thank you so much for having me on, John. It's fair to say that you got shocked into politics. Yeah. And what I mean by that is uh, you grew up military family, joined the Marines, served in the Middle East, mm -hmm. came back and you became an, an IT guy, a tech. And why don't you pick the story up from there? Yeah. So, you know, I was an electronics repairman in the Marine Corps when I got out of the Marine Corps. I uh, started working fixing cancer therapy equipment for a few years, and I absolutely loved that work, but I didn't love doing 70-hour weeks, and so I started bouncing around a little bit, trying to find something that was a little bit more conducive to having a personal life. I ended up in lighting controls, and uh, that's where I got hurt at work. Uh, I was working on a lighting control panel. The electrician that installed it had miswired it, so instead of 24 volts on a line, that was 245. Thankfully, it didn't stop my heart. It didn't clog my kidneys. Those are the two major ways that that sort of thing can kill you. But it did do you know, some pretty serious damage to my lower back. You know, I was essentially bedridden for about two months. I mean, I could walk, but maybe about 50 feet at a stretch. And the workers' comp doctors were just trying to, you know, give me pain pills and get me out the door. So I finally, I went to a doctor with my private insurance. It was the last thing I did before my employer canceled that health insurance. And the guy got me back up and running and I, I called my boss. I said, hey, I'm ready to go back to work. And they said, we have work, but none for you because the customer you were contracting for doesn't want you on their job sites. Why didn't they want you there? Oh, uh, I mean, anybody who works in the building trades is, has probably heard the phrase, if you, if you fall off a ladder, you're fired before you hit the ground. Um, and that's the sort of thing that's said as a joke, but it's completely serious. If you get hurt at work and you file a workers' comp claim, you're a troublemaker. You know, you're you're done. You got to find a new job. And so, you know, I went to I went to some folks that I knew that that worked for state legislators, and I said, hey, you know, what's what's your boss going to do about workers' comp because this is completely broken? And nobody had an answer. And one person even told me, oh, we don't have any polling data on workers' comp, so I don't know. And I realized at that point that uh, if it was going to get fixed, it was going to have to be someone with a personal experience. And I met the description there. So uh, I decided to go ahead and run for the House of Delegates. And, uh, you know, I was primarily motivated to, to fix the workers' comp system and everything else sort of came later. So is it fair to say that you weren't particularly political 
at the point where you decided to run for the state legislature? Well, I was a politics nerd, but that never went beyond arguing with people on the internet, right? <laughs> which I still do, uh, which my campaign manager would probably not be thrilled about, but <laughs> but it never rose above that. So you, you were interested in politics. You talked a lot of politics, but had you ever worked on a campaign? Or? No, I mean, I, I volunteered to knock on doors for Obama in 2012, but that was it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this was kind of a, a big learning curve. And interestingly, you decided to do this, to run for the legislature, if I'm right, sometime in 2016? Yeah. Roughly or around there. And you were quite inspired by what Bernie Sanders did. Yeah. Uh, I started hearing about Bernie Sanders right around the time that I decided to run for office. And you know, here was this guy who was making clear, convincing moral arguments talking about the kind of society that he thinks we should have. And he called himself a socialist. And, you know, that that inspired me to sort of Google what is socialism, because at that point, I mean, I had I had no idea. I just I had always considered myself a Democrat, but I was was inspired by, you know, the New Deal Democrats of, of days gone by and, and always sort of disgruntled by what I saw from Democrats uh, that were actually in power throughout my whole life. But I never really had an explanation for why that was until I saw what happened with with Bernie's 2016 presidential campaign. And when you Googled socialism, did you like say, oh, man, that's what I am? Or did you read a lot? How did, what, what happened there? Yeah, I read a lot. I started listening to some contemporary voices on the left, you know, folks like Richard Wolf, uh, who runs uh, Economic Update podcast and, and Democracy at Work, you know, reading up on the history of the labor movement and the, the bloody, violent labor wars that we had in the late 19th and early 20th century in America that, that are just not taught about in history classes. You know, when I started reading about, uh, you know, socialist analysis of politics and the economy, it all made sense and it all completely explained everything that I had a problem with. It completely explained everything that I sort of fundamentally believed but didn't have the words for. And uh, I tell you, I was not excited by the fact that it described me, right? I mean, it, it, was, it wasn't, it was yay, this is what I am. It was, oh, damn it, I am one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to go out and be this for the rest of my life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I wasn't really making a big deal about it in my campaign or in my personal life. Um, you know, I just... Uh, I said, okay, you know, this this describes what I believe, but, you know, I'm still, these are the issues that I'm running on, right? You know, I'm running on fixing the workers' compensation system, making sure that people have democratic control over their workplaces, and making sure that we have a healthcare system that guarantees everyone can see a doctor. And it was my opponent in 2017 that actually made a big deal about it first. And your opponent, this is an interesting thing, because you like a challenge clearly absolutely when you decided to run for the legislature you decided to run in a you know a, a pretty republican area and you ran against am i right the number three guy in the republican caucus in the state legislature one of the most powerful republicans in the capitol yeah that's right you know he was the the majority whip in the house uh, and this was at a time when the republican caucus was one seat away from a supermajority. 
So, you know, he was he was leadership in in a, a massively powerful, deeply entrenched Republican Party that was extraordinarily well funded by big corporate interests. And so, you know, I knew there was absolutely no way I was ever going to raise more money than this guy. I knew if I somehow raised a million dollars, he would raise two. And so, you know, we just went out there and, and made the case for, uh, you know, the kind of society that that we want to live in, talk to people at their doorsteps uh, and got people excited, you know, gave people who traditionally have not voted in state legislative races in the past a, a reason to believe that this election actually mattered. So you built up this incredible campaign. You had grassroots supporters. You had a real message. And at a certain point, even though your opponent was very powerful, very connected, had a lot of money, your opponent clearly realized that you were a threat. And then your race saw some of the most bizarre direct mail I've ever seen in American politics. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my, my predecessor sent uh, a piece of direct mail out to my guess is about 11,000 homes that had, you know, sort of the, the communist pantheon, right? So it had Marx, Engels, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, and Lee Carter. And all of the copy on that ad was talking about my health care plan, because you know, if there's one thing people remember Stalin for, it's the health insurance. I was mad for a couple of days, but then I realized this is, this is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> and I sort of, you know, embraced the absurdity and, and started using it, you know, as essentially a, a, a shorthand for pointing out whenever the right wing of American politics goes off the rails. Accusations of being a socialist or a communist is something that Republicans have been beating liberals over the head with for 40 years. But we're in a completely different political era. The, the majority of the voting population now is folks under 40, who, you know, if they remember the Soviet Union's existence at all, it was a childhood memory. When the Berlin Wall fell, you know, I was four. And, you know, we're at this point now where they can say whatever they're going to say, and then you just describe yourself. And, you know, it shows a, a lack of good faith on their part. They don't even try to understand the distinction between folks on the left, you know. Leftist infighting is a very long and storied tradition. There's absolutely no understanding of any of that. And they just say, oh, Nancy Pelosi is going to gulag your grandma. It, it's absurd. And so you just sort of laugh at it and you articulate your position. And it, it kind of bounces off these days. And, you know, my position, I'm a socialist. I, you know, draw heavily from uh, the syndicalist tradition. So my, my positions are people should have democratic ownership and control over their workplace because we spend the majority of our adult lives at work where we don't have any democracy at all. And so if you spend the majority of your life in an area where there's no democracy, how can you say you live in a democracy? Right. And, and there's there's all sorts of things that follow on from that. You know, if if you have a democratically controlled workplace, there are a lot of things that are never going to happen. You're never going to ship your own jobs overseas to make more money for the owners. You are the owners. Right. You're never going to disregard the environmental consequences of what you're doing because it's your kids that are drinking the, the water that you would be polluting and breathing the air that you would be polluting. And you don't have these enormous concentrations of wealth and power in our political system. So really, 
when, when you talk about building a democratic society where people who are impacted by decisions are the people making those decisions, it has to start in the workplace. And you brought some of that home on your victory night. Right. And you won by a pretty convincing margin on a night when a lot of other Democrats won legislative seats. It was seen as this you know, kind of surge that came through. Mm-hmm. And there were so many incredible victories on that night in Virginia. But the striking thing about yours was that at a certain point when victory was declared, you responded not with a speech, but with a song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we sang uh, an old union hymn, Solidarity Forever, um, because I figured the international might be a little aggressive. <laughs> There's a song that comes to mind. Those of you that know, join in. When the union's inspiration through the workers' blood shall run, there shall be. You know, a bunch of uh, a bunch of my supporters from from socialist organizations that that knew the words to solidarity forever. But, you know, we were at the local Democratic Party's watch party. And so, you know, the, the local Democrats were just sort of astounded and, and looking around like, what in the hell is happening? <laughs> Solidarity forever, for the union makes us strong. Thank you, Lee. We'll be right back after these messages. Have you visited the nation's new shop? At shop.thenation.com, you'll find resistance-themed artwork, nation logo totes, mugs and hats, books and more. All proceeds benefit the nation's journalism, including this podcast. That's shop.thenation.com. And thanks for your support. Now it's time for a word about Julian Assange. His indictment on espionage charges is an assault on freedom of the press. That's what Daniel Ellsberg says on the new edition of Start Making Sense, our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by John Wiener, the coolest man in L.A. Ellsberg ought to know. He was indicted on espionage charges back in 1971 for leaking the Pentagon Papers to The New York Times. That's Daniel Ellsberg on Julian Assange, this week on Start Making Sense. It's political talk without the boring parts. New episodes every Thursday at thenation.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Next Left. I'm speaking with Virginia State Delegate Lee Carter. And you went off down to the Capitol. Mm-hmm. With uh, Democratic governor, Democratic lieutenant governor, Democratic attorney general, and Democrats didn't have like full control of the legislature, but they had a lot more heft, a lot more power. But you hit the ground running as a legislator. And Mm -hmm. one of the interesting things about it is you didn't fit in. (laughs) <laughs> immediately. I, I hope I'm not, I don't want you, I want you to feel bad, but tell us about that. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Being the only elected socialist in a Republican held chamber in the South, you know, I, I very much feel like an invader down there, even within my own caucus. 
you know, I, I realized very early on when the Republicans barely maintained control of the House that my name was going to be a party line issue. And I, I didn't realize how far that was going to go until I presented my first bill, which uh, was to make cars stop for pedestrians in a crosswalk because current law says yield. I tried to change the word yield to the word stop, and I got a party line vote in subcommittee. <laughs> and I realized, okay, all right, this is how it's going to be. And so from that point forward, you know, it was sort of eyes on 2019 to make sure that after the next election, I came back in a majority where the, the people who had been roadblocks to my bills weren't there anymore. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of very hard to oppose bills. My legislative philosophy, uh, at least, you know, working from the minority has been that a lot of my bills will be stripped down to the bare minimum, you know, not these big 40, 50, 60 page bills with massive changes where everybody can find something they don't like. A singular change to correct a singular injustice. And so I carried a bill that says that you can't fire someone for getting hurt at work. That bill doesn't touch anything else about workers' comp, just you can't fire someone because they got hurt at work, killed on a party line vote. A bill to say that when you file a workers' comp claim, your employer has 21 days to let you know what they're going to do with the claim, killed on a party line vote. So you came there and started, you came and started working, and this is one of the things as I've watched you in the legislature, you have stuck to a lot of, you know, hardcore, essential, working class, workers' interest issues. Mm -hmm. But you have also been willing to go big on this. Yeah. Because in Virginia, one of the first states in the country to do a right-to-work law, and right-to-work laws are not really right-to-work at all. They are, in fact, laws developed by right-wing interests back in the post-World War II era to make it very, very hard to organize a union, make it very hard to maintain a union, and frankly, rooted in you know segregationists who didn't like the fact that the CIO was coming in with multiracial unions. You, in Virginia, proposed to get rid of right to work. Yeah, yeah, you know, so that there were basically two kinds of bills that I put in. There were those those small ones that were meant to correct singular injustices and also to, to make opposition to them completely untenable so that the folks who have been roadblocks to progress don't come back. But the second kind of bill that I've been introducing are these these big overarching, the sweeping changes of, of putting out the vision of the kind of society that we want to live in. And you're absolutely right about the history of Virginia's right to work law. Taft-Hartley was passed through the Congress in 1947. Same year, 1947, Virginia was one of the first states to enact that policy um, after states were allowed to do it. For those who may not be familiar, it, it sounds good on the label. Yeah, you have, you have the right to work, right? But it's an intentional misnomer. What it really is, is the right to freeload. Labor law requires that a union bargain on behalf of everybody in the bargaining unit. And a right to work law says you can get the benefits of the union that your coworkers are paying into and refuse to pay into it. So it's, it's a freeloader protection that's designed to bankrupt unions. And it came about in this tremendously racist, segregated South 
It was pushed largely by by Southern legislators who were cozy with business interests and who wanted to maintain segregation and wanted to maintain that sort of, you know, genteel class control over American politics. And it was aimed at, at bankrupting unions that were organizing across racial lines. They wanted to exploit this idea among white workers back then that you're paying for a union that black workers are taking advantage of. Uh, I had a lot of very angry conversations behind the scenes after I introduced that bill. You know, a lot of a lot of my colleagues had essentially begged me not to introduce it. They underestimated how popular fighting for working people can be when you actually do it. You know, when you stand up and you put your name on it and you say, I'm going to empower you in the workplace and in our politics. And, you know, looking back at the data, you know, we just we had a ballot referendum on whether or not to add right to work to our state constitution in 2016. It was overwhelmingly defeated. It was, I think, about a 10 point margin, if I remember right. You know, in 2018, Missouri, which is a much redder state than Virginia, they overturned their state's right to work law with a ballot referendum by a two to one margin. I mean, it was it was like 66, 34. That's right. And you look at the areas in Virginia where people voted to keep right to work out of the Constitution. And it's very surprising. You know, it's the poor areas, essentially. You know, it's it's places with working class folks. You know, the the right to work law is very popular in sort of liberal leaning rich suburbs. But in places like Manassas and Newport News and even Rural Appalachia, you know, Southwest Virginia, um, where people have this sort of ancestral memory of my granddaddy was in a union. My daddy was in a union. God, it would be nice if I could get a union job. You know, those are the places that voted against it. And those are the areas that uh, the Democratic Party really struggles to grow in. And another bill that I introduced, which would have legalized public sector strikes, Um, So right now, if a public sector employee like a teacher were to go on strike, they're automatically deemed by law to have resigned from their position and they are permanently ineligible from being a public sector employee in Virginia again. And so I had a bill to overturn that. And both of those bills went to the rules committee, which is the speaker's personal committee. And the expectation was the speaker is going to put these both on the floor. He's going to make all 100 members take an up or down vote on each of these bills, and they're going to fundraise off of them. And then an interesting thing happened a quarter of the way through the legislative session. We had 6,000 teachers and, and other union members show up on the Capitol steps from all corners of the Commonwealth. And a lot of them came from areas in Southwest Virginia. You know, these Republican held, but very culturally pro-union areas. And they all went around the the Pocahontas building, which is our, our legislative office building. And they talked to their delegates and senators. And they said, we're out here. We're energized. We're paying attention to the next elections. And we're paying attention to Lee Carter's bills. And then the very interesting thing that happened as a result was after they left that same afternoon, the speaker called a, a called a meeting of the rules committee and referred those bills to the regular committees that they would have gone to. Uh, he referred the right to work repeal to commerce and labor, and he re- uh, referred the uh, public sector right to strike to general laws. 
And what do you know, neither one of them ever got a hearing. Nobody ever voted on either of those bills. But you'll keep talking about them. Oh, absolutely. And they're both coming back next year. And you do a lot of this work as a working person. Mm-hmm. And and I think one of the most fascinating things about you is that you serve in a legislature, like many around the country, that doesn't pay its members a fortune. Mm-hmm. And you work as a, do you work as a Lyft driver? Yeah, I, you know, my professional background, I had two categories of work that I did, right? One was uh, in the medical field, repairing biomedical devices. So, you know, some cancer therapy equipment, some ophthalmology uh, testing devices. And the other category of work that I'd done before was very high travel. And neither of those are conducive to a schedule where I have to be in Richmond for two months out of every year and I have to be down here to campaign for re-election and, and do constituent services work and all that. So it sort of precludes me from doing work in my field. And the combination of that very strange and very demanding schedule and part-time pay serves as a structural barrier to keep working class people out of political conversations. So, you know, I'm, I'm doing whatever it takes to make ends meet. And what that means for me is, is driving for Lyft on the side just to get me that, that extra little bit so that I can pay the bills and keep the lights on because I'm not going to be stopped from fighting to make life better for working people. I don't care what challenges there are. I don't care what structural hurdles there are through essentially sheer force of will. I'm going to be here and you're going to have to deal with me and my bills and the people who support those bills. And that's the most important one. The people who support those bills, because we have people throughout this Commonwealth that are going to benefit immensely from policies that empower working class people. And they're in every legislative district And we got to go out there. We got to talk to them. We got to tell them, you know, these are the policies that are on the table. This is how it's going to impact your day-to-day life. This is how it's going to make your life better. And your elected representative is part of the problem. He's part of the reason we can't pass this. And when Lyft went on strike or when some Lyft drivers and Uber drivers struck you, you joined them and you made a, you have an incredibly active uh, Twitter feed. And you talked about supporting that strike. And and I have to tell you, when I think about legislatures across the country, I don't think there are that many members of legislatures who participate in a strike. Yeah. You know, when I tweeted about it, I didn't expect it to to be as big of a deal as it was. You know, it's just this is this is just my life. You know, for me, it's normal. I'm just I'm, I'm doing what I got to do to pay the bills. But I guess it resonated with a lot of people because, you know, I said, hey, I'm I'm participating in this strike. I'm not turning on the Lyft driver app tomorrow. I'm out here. I'm I'm supporting my my fellow rideshare drivers because we're fighting for a better life. And I I guess it resonated with people because, I mean, it went it just went wild on Twitter. A lot of what you do goes wild on Twitter. You uh, you did something that I don't know if I've ever seen any other politician do. And that is that you went on Twitter and you basically tried to speculate about everything you'd done that your opponents would attack mm-hmm. or everything they'd bring up about your past. Why'd you do that? And, and tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're entering a time in politics that's sort of post-privacy. Uh, folks my age, I'm, I'm 31, about to be 32. Folks my age and younger, we, we grew up with social media, right? So we had we had our awkward transitional years online in a searchable format. And so sort of every mistake that you can possibly imagine that, that you've made in your own life could potentially come back. You know, gone are the days of politicians with, you know, perfectly manicured public perception, right? You can't alter your own personal history and you can't hide it from people anymore. And so I just, I talked about all the things in my life that could potentially come up because I realized, um, you know, looking around at at some of the, the other socialists that were running for office throughout the country in 2018, when I was not up for re-election, I saw that you know attacking those folks on the issues was failing, and the right was starting to attack them on their personal histories. And so I said, you know, let's just let's just head that off at the pass. I'm going to tell everybody everything about my life. I have nothing to hide. You know, these are the parts that I'm embarrassed about. These are the parts that I'm proud of. This is my life. I am a person and I'm fighting for people. You know, I'm not a brand. I'm a human being with a history. And if you like that, you like it. If you don't like it, I'll try to do this without you. I got a lot of concerned phone calls from my older colleagues the day after saying, what are you doing? You know, you're giving the Republicans all this ammo. But there was a generational divide. You know, my, my younger colleagues understood exactly what I was doing. My older colleagues were freaking out. And there was, there was sort of a generational divide uh, uh, in how it was received by the public, too. You know, especially where I talked about the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm someone who uh, my entire dating life has been in the smartphone era. So, you know, I don't know what my ex-girlfriends did with certain pictures of me. I don't know if they deleted them. I don't know if they still exist. That's a thing that might come out. And older folks that are involved in politics saw that and and said, oh, my goodness, you know, this guy's talking about how there may be nude photos of him somewhere. And folks my age and younger are just like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's something I think about, too. But I tell you, just just radical honesty going out there and, and not trying to cover up any part of my past, not trying to have... Uh, you know, as Hillary Clinton said, public positions and private positions, just talking about who I am, where I came from and what I'm fighting for in the same exact language behind closed doors as I do in front of the public. It's tremendously liberating. Before we finish up, I want to ask you on your election night, you sang solidarity forever. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite political song? Uh, yeah, the International. I'm partial to the Billy Bragg version. I know that's a controversial choice on the left, but you know, I feel that that the lyrics to that version are approachable. You know, it's in in modern language and it starts off stand up all victims of oppression for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions. You have nothing if you have no rights. Yeah, I mean that that really sums it up. You know, we're we're fighting for a society where working people are not oppressed in our political life. We're not oppressed in our economic lives. This is about making sure 
that working people have control over our own destiny. It's socialism that's going to make us truly free. The international shall be the human race. Lee Carter, thank you so much for joining us on Next Left. Of course, and thank you so much for having me. Next Left is a project of The Nation magazine, and it's hosted by me, John Nichols. For more principled progressive journalism, you can check us out online at thenation.com, where you can subscribe to the magazine online and in print. This episode of Next Left was produced and edited by Sophia Steiner-Devoy. Our executive producers are Frank Reynolds, Aaron O'Mara, and Katrina Vandenhoevel. Big thank you this week to Nation Engagement Editor Annie Shields for all her help. Our theme music is Deli Run by Ava Luna, who you can check out at avalunagroup.com. Our logo was designed by Sinead Chung. We got some additional recording help this week from Wisconsin-based reporter Angelo Bautista and Virginia-based engineer Tom Bernath. If you're enjoying the show, please let us know by rating and reviewing us on iTunes and subscribing anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us next week as we take the next left with Rashida Tlaib, the new congresswoman from Michigan's lucky 13th district. She's the first Palestinian Muslim woman ever to serve in Congress, a civil rights and civil liberties lawyer who once confronted Donald Trump with a copy of the Constitution. Now she's using that same Constitution to propose his impeachment. Mm-hmm.